Well, good morning, and I'm looking forward to looking into God's Word together in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This year, as we started, we're working through the book of 1 Timothy, and then, and then a little later, 2 Timothy, and we just go verse by verse and passage by passage, and uh, we hit some hard spots in the book, and uh, then we hit some other spots that are hard. You know, you thought last week was hard. Um, this week, you know, I've got to talk about my own job, and, uh, and that's a little challenging as well. Uh, we're, we're in a section that probably in your Bible has a heading that says qualifications for overseers. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. What sort of people should lead in God's church? And we're going to seek to answer that question together. Well, we're going to read the text in just a moment, and then I'll pray afterwards. But uh, I want to ask that you would pray for me this coming week. I'm going to be leaving this afternoon to head to the Air Force Academy. I've been a reserve chaplain in the Air Force for 15 years. And so today I'll shave off the beard and put on the uniform and head over to the academy. And I just wonder if you would pray for me over these next couple weeks as I minister to airmen and, uh, and serve the, the Air Force uh, over in Colorado. And um, thankfully, come back next week. Even though I'm gone, Pastor John will be preaching next week. And so come back next week, but please just pray for me. I uh, entered the, the Air Force chaplaincy because I really felt burdened to serve in a missional way. Um, I was burdened about, about airmen and military members in places where um, they have no other option than to be shepherded by a chaplain. And uh, the Lord has just opened great opportunities uh, for the gospel, to encourage believers, and, uh, and to serve. So please pray for me uh, over these next couple weeks. Well, here we are. We're in 1 Timothy. Let's take a look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'd like to read the text. And when I finish verse 7, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond Thanks be to God. Follow along, please, as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and look into this text. Lord, I ask that you would help our church to be led by this text today. Maybe at first glance, many sitting in their seats don't see any application to their lives. I'm not an elder. What does this have to do with me? But I wonder if you would have them be prepared to guard the office of eldership 
to those who are qualified. That perhaps you would prepare some of them. Maybe one day they would sit on a pastoral selection committee and have to think about the next shepherd that would lead the flock. Lord, as we look at this list of qualifications, perhaps it's standing out to some in the room that this list actually is directed towards all of us in other passages of Scripture. Almost this whole list actually applies to all Christians at large. And so help us, help us to aspire to live before your face in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I traveled with uh, Pastor Jotham this week, uh, well, this last week, down to Florida. Um, someone had to suffer for Jesus last week, and so we raised our hand and said, Lord, here am I. Send me to Florida. <laughs> no, we were at a missions conference uh, down in Florida, and at one point when I was traveling with Pastor Jotham, I said, you know, airplane etiquette has changed uh, over the last few years, hasn't it? I mean, things are a little different on airplanes. Uh, it used to be that you were polite and at least minimally engaged in conversation with the person sitting next to you. There was a day where you said hello. But now people board the airplane with their AirPods already in place. They sit down, stare at the screen, stay in their own bubble with headphones securing them in their own personal zone. Is that, can you raise your hand and say, yes, I've seen that. Yes, I am that. All right. All right. Some of us, some of us were like, it's, we're moving in the right direction. All right. You don't like the small talk. You'd rather stay in your space. The flight attendants though, I tell you, I, I have, you know, I have a spot in my heart for, for these, these folks. You know, I watched this happen right in front of me, this flight attendant. Sir, would you like something to drink? Sir, would you like something to drink? Third time. Sir, would you like something to drink? Only to have sir move his head. Hey, can I get something to drink? Yeah. And you're just like, oh, man, the patience that they must have, you know. That's how it rolls these days on most flights, except when you're leaving Florida. I, mean, I want you to think about Florida for a second. There are some unique things about that state. There were so many seniors on our flight. It just made me smile. I mean, I was like, this is, this is like an AARP convention <laughs> right here in our terminal. I mean, it was fan fantastic. And they were wonderful people. Um, they weren't donning their AirPods, let's just say that. There was some lively chit-chat on this flight from Florida back here to Salt Lake. The couple sitting across the aisle on Jotham's side, uh, they were lively. Uh, I boarded first, this couple's across the way, they have this bag. The wife says, you can't put that under your seat. He says, I can fit it under my seat. 
She says, no, you can't. He says, yes, I can. And you know, you know the banter of people who've been married for like 40 years, 50 years. Like they're just, you know, it's got to go up above. I don't want to put it up. I mean, he's glancing at me like with these like Frank Sinatra, I'm doing it my way. You know, <laughs> these little twinkle in his eye. This is, this is, finally, he comes around as though it's his idea. I'm going to put it up above. He said, you know, like, like he came up with the idea. But then he's having problems with his like extendable cane, you know, that like contracts and he's trying to get his cane. And I'm, so finally I just pop up, sir, can I help you with that? And I, I put it up above. And this starts this conversation with this couple. Jotham finally comes on. They give him a hard time. They don't want to stand up. They're like, crawl over the seat. You're coming on late. You know, this whole thing. It was fantastic. Um, next to me was another elderly couple. The, the man sitting next to me, his name was Rich. He had a, a Wolverine's hat on. And as soon as I acknowledged Michigan, you should have seen this guy light up. I mean, it was like he was living his year, you know. I mean, this, this right, Paul? I mean, he, he went to the game. I mean, he was, he was living large and he, he loved it. So anyways, all this conversation is going on when finally Jotham on the other side of the aisle, he's all the way by the window over there talking to the, the couple next to him. He says with a loud enough voice for it to be heard on my side, Jotham says, pointing to me, he's a pastor with me at a church. Well, Rich sitting on my side of the aisle next to me leaned over and said, how do you feel when someone says he's a pastor? I didn't know what to think, so I just replied quickly, well, it could be worse. He could have said, <laughs> some of you are like, I said to him, it could be worse. He could have said, I'm a criminal. <laughs> to which Rich shot back, some might see them as pretty close. Then I think he realized that might have been insulting. And so, so he goes, but that's their problem. You know, as though that's not what he thinks. You know, that's their problem. Well, that little conversation made me think about pastors and criminals. And how some might see them as pretty close. And quite frankly, it made me sad. Because if leaders of Christ's church can't be differentiated from common criminals, then we have a serious problem. Perhaps it's an indicator that we need to get back to scriptures and recover true spiritual leadership in the church. And I think our text this morning can help us. Because Paul here in 1 Timothy 3 clarifies and this is where I'm going. He clarifies condition, character, and competency qualifications for church leaders. Paul answers the question, what kind of people are supposed to be leading the church? So I want to start with condition qualifications. And I've tried to, listen, I was, this is what I was thinking about this week as I prepared this message. I was thinking... I don't think that the list of qualifications is hard to understand. In other words, I think you could just read it. You know what those words mean. They're not complicated. The challenge of this text is probably not losing all of you as we go through this long list. And also the challenge to this text 
is helping you realize that it's actually for you as much as it's for me. I mean, pause for a second even before I dive into this list. Paul writes this list to Timothy knowing it's going to be read to the whole congregation. And the reason that's significant is because that congregation had let false teachers and corrupt leaders stand up here. And so this list is as much for you as it is for me because your job, and you can read this in Galatians chapter 1, your job is to protect this place and to protect the gospel so that the only thing that is preached here is true to God's word and that those who deliver that message walk consistently with that word. That's your job. You need to know this list because you need to know how to fire someone who doesn't align with it. Do you see that? And then here's the second reason why you need this list. You need this list because like I prayed, almost everything in this list is also commended to you as a Christian in some other text of scripture. Almost everything here is also something that should characterize you as a Christian. So let's look at the first category. I just tried to clump them together. The first category, I just call it condition qualifications. And it's because these qualifications relate to a man's condition in life or his situation in life. They're not really like moral or spiritual, though they could have intersections with those things. But they have to do more with one's desire or one's reputation or one's maturity, their situation or condition in life. So Paul starts out by indicating that in verse number one, in terms of how an elder must have aspiration and desire for eldership. Notice verse number one. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In other words, Paul is saying this, eldership is for those who have a heart for it. It's for those who have an inner want or a settled desire, a stretching forward for the task. I guess what Paul is saying is that no one should lead God's people who don't desire to do so. In other words, if you don't want to do this, you shouldn't be doing it. I think that's an important indicator for elders. If there is a death in their heart that they no, want to, no longer want to shepherd God's people, it might be an indicator they shouldn't be shepherding God's people. Peter wrote it this way. This way he said, he said to the elders that are among him, he said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he said this, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And so I think there's something that should characterize the condition of an elder or the situation of an elder, and that is that inside he has a desire or an aspiration to shepherd God's flock. For some of you men in the congregation, I wonder, and quite frankly, our team is praying, our pastoral team is praying that there would be some men in our congregation that God would stir up a desire in you for eldership. Maybe you see a need for shepherding care here at Gospel Grace and your heart is being drawn 
Do you remember this? In, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, Jesus stands up. He looks at all of these people. And it says this. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? And his heart is just filled with compassion. And I just wonder if there are some men in this church where God is doing that in your heart. You're looking at some of the needs. I mean, you came in this morning. There's no seats. You're like, these, there's so many people. I want to be part of caring for the souls of people. And I wonder if God might be stirring up in some of you. Maybe you're contentedly working. You're studying. You're pursuing a career. And then a sermon you hear or a conversation you have suddenly floats through your mind this thought. Maybe I should become a pastor. The more you think about it, the more you think, huh, maybe I would like that. And that happens sometimes in churches. As, that's what happened with me. Some of you think maybe, like I, you know, I was born and then my first word was church. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not how it worked. Actually, I wanted nothing to do with pastoring at all, at all all the way through college. I graduated from college with a degree in biological science and did not want to be a pastor. I wanted to attend church and do my own thing. And God uh, dramatically worked in my heart to begin stirring a desire to care for God's people. He changed the course of my life. And you know what, it's not a unique story. He's done that in so many others. And our prayer would be that he would do that in some of you men, even who are here this morning. Desire for eldership doesn't close the deal, but it is an initial signal that Paul points to in the pathway towards pastoring. They have to desire and aspire for this. Well, the text goes on and it talks about qualifying potential elders with a second condition, and that is this. He must not be a novice. So you can have someone who has a desire to do this, but they just came to know the Lord last week. Well, this probably isn't the right time for them. In verse number six, look at verse number six. It's a really clear phrase. He says, he must not be a recent convert. So he can't be a novice. Can't be a brand new Christian. They may have a zeal, but it may be a zeal that's not according to knowledge yet. The principle of the text would point away from uh, a new believer or a young person all of a sudden taking up the weight of eldership. I mean, probably even the word itself, elder, points to, though there's no specific age, it probably points away from like teenagers uh, being elders. It's probably not the practice. A new believer being an elder, probably not the practice not a recent convert. Because eldership isn't the proper first step. Fresh recruits don't lead platoons. They learn to follow and to fight first. They prove their grit and their faithfulness. And so a newly planted, neophytic, young Christian is not the one who should fill the office of eldership. What that means is that they need to be trained and matured and mentored into ministry. 
It's one of the reasons why here at Gospel Grace Church, we have a robust training program for future elders. We want to see men mature over time. We value quality over rapidity. You know, there are some people that just want to rapidly produce or rapidly fill slots. And in doing that, they're violating what Paul said when he said, lay hands suddenly on no man. They care more about the speed than they do about the preparation. There are actually mission organizations that they make this their mantra. Like they're, they're more passionate about getting more done, quote unquote, more quickly than they are about actually training leaders for the church. One of the largest mission organizations with 3,532 field personnel reported last year that they had 178,177 new believers, 102,417 baptisms, and 21,231 new churches established. Now, just as your heart is about to say, amen, wow, 178,000 new believers, 21,000 new churches, 100,000 new baptisms, and you're about to like say, amen and praise God. But then you do the math. And what that means is that every one of the 3,532 field workers, every one of them planted six churches in that year, baptized 28 new believers, and are responsible for discipling 50 new converts. I just want to pause for a second. We are a church planting church. And you know what goes into planting a church and sending people. Six churches in one year? You know how much energy we as a church put into training future leaders. If you've ever discipled someone, can you imagine being responsible to disciple 50 in one year? I mean, what about next year and the next year? You know what I mean? So while these numbers sound really great, what they actually show is that they're pushing neophytes into leadership positions and they're probably not preparing them. And most likely, when we go back in 10 years, we're gonna be sad about what's left. This isn't the pattern that Paul's teaching here. He's saying the leadership of the church, they can't be novices, recent converts. Healthy churches need mature pastors. And so disciple-making movements, church planning movements, any three, training for trainers, that kind of stuff that values huge over healthy, we don't want any part of. Instead, we want to follow what this text says. We want to see future pastors mentored. We want to help them grow in faith, knowledge, and character, and only then put into places of authority in the church. The final circumstantial qualification that we see in this text is that an elder must have a good reputation both inside and outside the church. And that's in verse number two and verse number seven. Look at verse two. He must be above reproach. And later in the verse it says, respectable. Or skip down to verse seven. He must be well thought of by outsiders. So yes, he has to have aspiration and desire in his heart. Yes, he has to not be a novice or a new convert, but he also has to have a good reputation both inside the church and outside. 
Paul didn't want the witness of the church to be compromised by valid objections to its leaders. He wanted to have leaders who could be examples to the flock, like Peter writes about in 1 Peter 5.3. Models who stand in front and show and tell what Christians are supposed to be like. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that pastors aren't perfect. But as one author put it, they should be men whose inner and outer lives are sewn together with threads of integrity and Christ-likeness. Examples to the flock. Elders should be men about which Hebrews 13.7 makes sense. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There should be leaders in the church where that verse makes sense. If you have leaders in the church where you look up and say, they're the last people I'd want to imitate. There's no way I want to follow them. Then you don't have the right leaders. Paul uses this umbrella term in verse number two, above reproach. Elders must be faithful in their dealings. Someone who receives respect because they are, in fact, respectable. Man who inspires uprightness, a life of integrity. That's what Paul is talking about here. I think it's important in this text, in verse number two, let me just, let me just emphasize a word, verse two and verse seven. Emphasize a word and then make this point. He must be above reproach. Verse seven, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The word must indicates that these are prerequisites, not preferences. These are qualifications, not merely optional ideas. I wanna say why this is important because there are seasons in a church's life where there could be a leader who is no longer qualified. It's clear to everyone. But in those moments, there's people who sit in the seat and their heartstrings play. Oh, but they did the wedding for my daughter. Oh, they were there when my baby was born. They preached my dad's funeral. They've been such nice people. I don't see how we could ask them to leave. No. This text says they must be this. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. They must be this. And so there are seasons when a church has to make a hard decision, and that is to ask a pastor to leave because he no longer fulfills these qualifications. And I want to tell you, as hard as that might be on your heart, it's the right thing to do. God cares about his church, and therefore he cares about those who stand up in positions of leadership. An elder doesn't need to be faultless, but he does need to be faithful, such that like a Teflon pan, reproach doesn't stick to him. Here in the opening of this text, as we've looked at, these are what I call condition qualifications. They have to do with the condition or situation of an elder's life. But I want to move on in this text and talk about character qualifications. Character qualifications. These have to do with an elder's heart. 
character is a funny thing. Um, character is a funny thing because it takes a long time to develop. And yet it's invisible. I mean, there's manifestations of it, but character is something that develops over time inside. I like to put it this way. Character is like soup. It needs to simmer. You can't make good soup by merely taking the ingredients, dumping them in a pot, and then grab a ladle and scoop it out. There you go. It's going to taste horrible. Those ingredients need time. They need to simmer. And so does character in your life. Now, I want to tell you something. We struggle with this, and I know we do. Because some of us think that because we've had good behavior for a week, we now have good character. No, good behavior for this last month doesn't mean you have good character. It's some of the reason why some of you are struggling in your marriage. You want your spouse to quickly forgive you and act like everything's okay because suddenly you've changed your behavior. But what they really want is a change of character. Character takes time. It's faithfulness over the long haul. And that's what he's talking about in this text. Remember, that's again why you can't have new believers or recent converts, neophytes, leading in the church. You need to be able to observe their character. So elders need to have good character, not just good behavior. And you see this come to bear in a few different ways. Look at verse number three. An elder must be able to control his anger. Here's the point of character. Verse number three, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Maybe a guy can clench his jaw and bite his tongue during the interview weekend, but the, the scriptures actually demand more than that. Elders need to have bridled hearts so that they can handle pressured situations, so that they can be in scenarios where there's conflict and they can do it without blowing a gasket. They have to have the spirit-enabled fruit of, this comes from Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit. They need to have the spirit-enabled fruit of self-control. A couple summers ago, I was running with my son and um, he asked me, you know, he's a funny cat. You know, he asked me these random yet deep questions, sometimes at odd moments. We're running, and he says, what do you think is your most prominent default emotion? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to run. <laughs> trying not to die here, you know. What do you think is your most prominent default emotion? Hmm. Now, he asked me the question right after we crossed Liberty Park entrance, you know, over here, on 1300 South. And the reason that's significant is because as we were in the crosswalk crossing with the right-of-way, here comes a bozo <laughs> around the turn and nearly hits us. And I was, you know, a little frustrated by nearly being hit. What do you think is your most prominent default emotion? 
Admittedly, I was embarrassed because the answer was actually anger. Like, I think maybe one of the main default emotions when life doesn't go my way or when I'm in a spot that I'm not in control could be that I get frustrated or irritated. I was convicted in that moment. I mean, it pushed me to work with another brother in the church through David Powlison's book called Good and Angry for about a year. We would just meet at 6.30 in the morning on Thursday mornings, and we'd just go chapter by chapter, week by week, because I really believe that God wanted me to change because it doesn't please the Lord to get quickly frustrated or irritated or angry, and it doesn't adorn the office of eldership. And he needed to change me in this. I wanted God to grow in me charity, peaceableness. This is what Paul says. It's a great phrase. I wanted him to grow in me the constructive displeasure of mercy. I needed to work on my anger because elders are not supposed to be quarrelsome, violent, angry people. They can't be bullies with their tongues or their hands. Instead, they're supposed to be characterized, and this is what I wanted God to do in my life. I wanted him to marinate my heart so that I could be characterized by sweet reasonableness, by gentleness. Isn't that how Jesus described himself? I am gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew 11. Well, in this passage, as he walks through the heart of elders, he says, in addition to temperance concerning your temper, elders also have to share in their life and their goods. The text calls for spiritual leaders. Look at verse number two. Here's a key word. They need to be hospitable. Look at verse number three. Not lovers of what? Money. Do you see how those two kind of go together? You're not a lover of money. You're hospitable. You share your life and your goods. You hold tightly to the things of God and lightly to the things of this earth. Remember I said early on that most of these qualifications are things that God expects from you too? So stand underneath the weight of this with me. Don't grasp at possessions. Don't clutch at your stuff. Share your life and share your goods. I love the story of John Wesley, 1731. He began to limit his expenses so that he could give more of his money to the poor. He recorded one year his income was 30 pounds. His living expenses were 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. The next year, he doubled his income, but he still lived at 28 pounds. He was able to give 32 pounds away. The third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. He still lived on 28 and gave the rest away. Eventually, Wesley's income in today's dollars rose to $160,000 annually, and yet he lived on $20,000. Elders aren't supposed to be greedy in their getting or stingy in their giving. And that's not just elders. That's believers at large. We're supposed to be people who care for people people who share 
with others. That, the word hospitable, verse two, the word hospitable, it, mean, it, it literally means love for strangers. An elder doesn't live in his clique. He doesn't isolate himself in his inner circle. He cares for others broadly and he shares his life and goods with them. Notice how the text continues, however, and talks about another character qualification. He can't be angry. He has to share his life and goods. Here's number three. He has to be faithful to his wife. Verse two, do you see it there? The husband of, this is an interesting phrase, the husband of one wife. Because sometimes you're wondering, and there are a great many interpretations that have gone in different directions on this. The husband of one wife. What does this mean? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the phrase and see if we can play it out a little bit here, okay? Does it mean husband of one wife? Emphasizing the necessity of marriage. Some have taken it that way. Like, you can't be an elder if you're not a husband, if you're not married. Single men can't be elders. Some have tried to interpret it that way. The Eastern Orthodox Church actually has interpreted this as obligatory marriage. Or here's another point of emphasis. Let me read it again. Husband of one wife, as opposed to polygamy, or some have interpreted it as opposed to divorce and remarriage. The Greek literally means a one-woman man, which I think points to fidelity. There's an interesting corollary for widows. It's in 1 Timothy 5.9. So in the same book, there's an interesting phrase that almost is one for one, except it's referring to women this time. And it says, this widow is supposed to be... Have, is supposed to have been, listen, the wife of one husband. So an elder is supposed to be the husband of one wife, but these elderly women who are put on the widow's list were supposed to be the wife of one husband. Now, when it says the wife of one husband, it's not speaking against polyandry, since that was rarely practiced in the first century. Nor is it emphasizing the status of being married. They must have been married, because that's what the word widow actually implies. Instead, it seems to be pointing to a woman who was faithful to her husband in marriage. And that's why I think the corollary here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is pointing to fidelity and purity in marriage, not speaking against, although, you know, the scriptures would speak against, you know, polygamy and, and these other things, right? But, but here I think he's talking about fidelity, purity in marriage. An elder needs to be pure emotionally and physically. He needs to uphold the faithfulness of his marriage. And what that means is that a man who is flirtatious, carries on emotional affairs, is ensnared in pornography, engages in sexual immorality, he's not qualified to serve as an elder. God wants pastors who model faithful love in marriage because that's how Christ loves his church. <clears throat> So Paul has dealt with the condition, the character, and finally he deals with competency qualifications. This is the last category that I want to talk about this morning in terms of the qualifications for elders. What do they need to be able to do? What, what sort of competencies do they need to have? And not just, I would say this, not just be able to do them, but actually do them. Look at the text. The first thing I wanted to point out is that he needs to be able to lead himself. What sort of competency should you look for in an elder? You should look for a man who can lead himself. 
It's very funny that we, you know, we often expand the concentric circles very quickly and look at the outside here. Where does it intersect me? Would, would he be a good leader for me? Would he be a good leader for our church? Stop. Can this guy even lead himself? Ask that question first. Look at verse number two. He needs, and I'm gonna bring out a few, a few points to this. He needs to be sober-minded, self-controlled. Do you see that? Able to lead himself. Self-controlled. Or look at verse number three. Not a drunkard. I mean, there, there's, there's some leadership of self involved there. An elder needs to have a sense of sobriety in life, clarity in thought. He needs to be prudent and sensible and moderate and controlled. Specifically in the text here, it says controlled with alcohol. I think it's an important point here, especially in our modern Western culture, where pub theology and the reformer's brewery vibe is something that people like to take part in. The qualification here for an elder, however, is that they're not a drunkard. Now, it's not pointing to total abstinence. We know that from 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Remember, this is where he looks at uh, Timothy and he says, you need to use a little wine for your stomach's sake. So he's not talking about total abstinence, but he is pointing to clear temperance. Friends, I, you know, I just am going to state it plainly. Drunkenness is sin, and it is a clear manifestation of fleshly living, not spiritual living. I'm not making that up. Paul said that in, in Galatians chapter 5. He says, evident are the manifestations of the flesh, and he gives this list, one of which is drunkenness. Church leaders are to have no business being intoxicated. Instead, I mean, think about it. They're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine. It leads to debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit, not spirits. Spirit. <laughs> One of the fruits of the Spirit is Galatians 5.23. It says it's self-control. They're able to lead themselves in moderation. These three qualifiers, sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, they all point to a life of self-mastery. A 16th century French author wrote this. He said, how shall I be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? Friends, if you find a failure in pastoral leadership, when you peel things back, you will see a failure in self-leadership. Before a pastor or any other leader worries about others, he must first be able to lead himself. But not only that, Paul goes on and says he also needs to be able to manage his household. So lead yourself and then lead your family. So before he ever gets a chance to lead the church, you should look at his own life and then you should look at his family life. Verse number four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
when it comes to the home and family, the elder's leadership must be evident. He needs to take the initiative instead of being passive. He needs to take responsibility instead of being negligent. He needs to lead with dignity, like the text says, instead of being domineering. You need to see a husband and father who looks after his family and one who maintains an orderly home. I can't help but think of the example of the priest in the Old Testament named Eli. Do you remember him in the book of 1 Samuel? His sons were Hellions. They committed sexual immorality outside the tabernacle. They stole the offerings of people. While they were coming to make sacrifices, they stood outside the tabernacle and were stealing things from God's people. And yet Eli the priest did nothing about it. And so God told Samuel this, 1 Samuel 3.13, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. God wants spiritual leaders who manage themselves and manage their homes. It comes down to this. The life a pastor lives in private determines the ministry he can have in public. If he can't oversee his own family, how could he possibly oversee the family of God? Well, Paul points out one final competency qualification in our text this morning. And that is in verse number two. Notice verse number two. He must be able to teach the word faithfully. Verse two just has the little phrase, able to teach. It's repeated again in the book of First Timothy, I mean in the book of Second Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse 24. Second Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's servant must be able to teach. In other words, elders need to be able to communicate God's word in a way that's accurate and understandable and edifying to the people of God. John Calvin put it like this, an elder must have wisdom in knowing how to apply God's word to the profit of the people. Now, does that mean that all elders must preach every Sunday? I mean, we could have like five different sermons and we could do like tag team preaching and like there's Will and he's ready, he's waiting. And I say, in Jesus' name, after like 50 minutes, in Jesus' name, amen. And then Will runs up to the stage and he high fives me. I say, go for it. And then he comes up and starts again. And then when he's finished, then John puts down his guitar and says, I've got a word. And then he preaches, you know, and then Jotham comes up from this side. And then finally, John comes, or Josh comes down the center aisle. I mean, what would it be like? I mean, is that what this text is saying? They have to be able to teach and therefore they must teach every Sunday. No, that's not what the text, thankfully, that's not what the text is saying. Certainly all elders should be involved in some kind of teaching. They're supposed to be able to teach. It's, it's one of the qualifications for eldership. They're supposed to be gifts to the church. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. They're supposed to be gifts to the church characterized as shepherd teachers. That's what they're called, shepherd teachers. But they may be teaching in the church through counseling or teaching in the church through small groups 
or teaching in the church through discipleship or teaching in the church through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs like it says in Colossians 3.16. So whether they preach on Sunday mornings with the whole gathered congregation or not, all elders need to be able to give good instruction in the word and they need to be able to correct those in error through the word. I think it's important to note that pastors have to be good learners so that they can be good teachers. I just bought this book by John Piper entitled Foundations for Lifelong Learning. He's kind of been an inspiration to me. I mean, there's this whole cadre of these older famous preachers that, I mean, they inspire me. Because though they are like decades beyond me in their age, they bring the word with great power and accuracy. And I've thought to myself, like, you know, I am going to keep getting older and older and more and more out of touch. You know, like, but God's word touches all of us. And if I can faithfully deliver God's word, I don't have to keep up with the latest apps on my iPhone. It'll be okay for me to be irrelevant when it comes to the iPhone because God's word is relevant for all of us. But what that means is an elder has to keep learning God's word. They have to be good learners so that they can be good teachers. And it just made me think, like, as I grow older, I don't want to ever feel like I've arrived I don't ever want to get into a rut as a pastor of just delivering repackaged, stale truths. I don't want the bicycle of my teaching to coast on the pedaling of my learning from yesteryear. I want to continue to learn God's word, to plumb the fathomless depths of scripture. I want to keep teaching afresh. Elders have to be taught so that they can teach. Isn't that what 2 Timothy 2.2 is all about? What you have heard of me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. At the end of the day, if a man is lazy in his learning, he'll be limited in his teaching. So friends, this passage communicates to us that God cares about his church. And because he cares about his church, he cares about those who lead it. They need to fulfill condition, character, and competency qualifications. I'll close with this. It comes from Richard Baxter, his classic work, The Reformed Pastor. He said it well. He said, take heed to yourselves lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. So for the glory of God and the good of his people, may elders be qualified. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes as we conclude this morning? And in the silence of this moment, I just wonder if some of you 
are realizing that the qualifications for eldership look a lot like what God wants for all Christians. You are supposed to be faithful in your marriage. You too are supposed to be self-controlled with your temper, your drinking, your money. You're supposed to be hospitable as well. You need to pursue a good reputation inside and outside the church. Perhaps the Lord is convicting some of you about some of these things that need to change. And if that's the case, will you just confess your sin to the Lord, turn to him in faith, and ask for help? Secondly, I wonder if some of you are just burdened to pray for the elder team here at Gospel Grace. We as your pastors, we need your prayers because eldership pins a bullseye on us. You know, two times in our text, it talks about the devil's attacks on elders. Would you pray for us? And finally, would you just pray for more pastors here at Gospel Grace? Maybe just ask God to raise up some new elders, men who aspire and desire to serve in ministry. Perhaps the Lord would give us some bivocational pastors to join our team. We pray for someone you think might be suitable for that. Or perhaps some of you men in this room need to pray that God would guide and direct you concerning this noble task. Let's take these next few moments and pray. There are some prayer prompts up on the screen. And maybe you could just use those to respond to the word of the Lord this morning. Are there characteristics of elders that need to characterize you? Would you pray for the pastoral team here? And would you ask God to raise up more elders for his church?